So we're going to continue on with small, small farm irrigation. Um, I'm going to be doing, oh, I think I have that written in here. Okay. Um, yes. I'm going to be, uh, so the, we're going to be looking at basically the overview specs of what you need to be thinking about so that you can ir have enough water to be able to irrigate your farm adequately. Okay. So we're, our metric here is going to be one acre. Okay, everyone clear? We're talking about one acre of vegetable production. So if you're doing a quarter acre, divide it by four. If you're doing half an acre, divide it by half. If you're doing two acres, multiply it once, right? So this is our metric. Now, um, we're going to be talking about overview specifications that we need. Um, as far as infield irrigations like drip line and overhead and things like that, I'm going to be at my booth. If anyone has any questions for me, it ha in the exhibit hall, it says irrigation consulting. It kind of seems weird that I'm doing this, but, you know, I have some ideas, and we can talk back and forth, and maybe you have some ideas. So, um, anyways, I have my booth there, uh, and then also um, I'm going to uh, seminar six uh, for the main conference. Uh, so it's the last uh, class on Friday on the poolside room, which is way over there. Um, I'm going to be, is it not over there? Anyways, look at, look at your map, look at your map. We're, we're directionally compromised here. Um, so I, I'll be having a seminar there going more into the specifics of, of those things and different types of irrigation as far as above ground, uh, um, infield irrigation. And then, um, I have worked for the past year with a company called Irrigation Mark. They're in uh, South Central Louisiana, I believe. That can't, yeah. Uh, and they are awesome. Um, I've been working with them, and there's a few guys that they're just really experts in their fields. Um, and if you're looking at, these are going to be overall specifications we talk about. They are going to be able to say, look, what's your water source? Where is it? How much is it? And they'll be able to help you design a system specifically for your area. The, the, the information that you have to need to, to design a system from the ground up is beyond the scope of this class. Um, but I just want to put them down there. They're awesome. Great customer service. Um, I wish they could have been here. They sent some catalogs uh, that you can pick up at the uh, information booth. Yeah, at Agra info booth. Um, resource table, that's what it's called, in the exhibit hall. So just want to point that out. Um, so, um, these, like I was saying, these are specs that I've learned uh, putting our system together that I'm going to share with you today. Um, unfortunately, this system has not operated. Actually, it hasn't operated yet. So, this is information that I'm giving you from working with Irrigation Mart, if that makes sense. And I will come next year and confirm what they said, okay? <laughs> so, how much water do you need for one acre? The, the rough estimates is 15 to 25 gallons per minute per acre minimum. Um, if you're asking me, um, I wouldn't go below 25 per acre. I think you're going to need it, but there is some fudge factor there. And, but you don't want to go below 15. You're just not going to have enough water. And these, these numbers are calculated basically saying, like the minimum is calculated saying, I'm going to run my irrigation 24-7, day and night, and it's going to keep up with this. See, that, that's not, that's like pushing a system to its limits. And we don't want to do that. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later. So I would stick more with the 25 gallons uh, personally. And 15 PSI for drip line. If you're just doing drip irrigation, you can easily get away with 15 PSI. But if you're trying to use any type of overhead, which in a mixed vegetable production, I believe is a must, you're really looking at 35 plus. And I say plus is because the higher that, the 35 is, in my opinion, the minimum. The higher you get, the more variety of heads you can use and the more variety of throw patterns. And the, some of these things won't work under, you know, let's say 45 PSI. So you can increase the, your, um, you can increase your variety of irrigation equipment with higher PSI. Okay? So design factors in your system. Build the system for the most water-demanding period of the year. So that would, in Texas, that would probably be uh, mid-July, August, and 
to mid-September. That's going to be when you're going to, you're going to meet the most demands and you want to make sure that you have enough water to meet that time of the year. Some people might say, well, you know, I get a lot of rain. Well, when do you get a lot of rain? Is that when you're actually going to be growing your product? You really want, you don't want to run out of water when you get to that, that demand, okay? Build a cushion into your system. Now, this is what I was talking about. When you're down at 15 gallons per minute, in my opinion, you're kind of, and of course, this will depend on, you know, the time of years. But remember, we're building our system for the driest, the most extreme possible situation, not possible, but the most regularly extreme situation that we have to deal with. We want to be able to build a cushion into our system so that we have um, water in excess. And what I mean by this is, let's say that you calculate your water needs based on watering day and night, okay? What if your system breaks down? And this happens. What if you have a, a major line break? Or what if you have a pump that goes out and you need to order it, okay? You'll never catch up. You have, you, you, you're, you're, you've pushed your system to its limits that you don't have the water that even if you got a pump you know, in a day, you would already be a day off of that irrigation cycle and your plants could die in an extreme time of the year. So, and that's the difference between making or breaking an operation. So building cushion into your system like that is, is a really important thing, having flex. And my rule of thumb that I use for my farm, and I'm not saying that you'd need to go to this extreme, but I want to be able to irrigate my entire 2.3 acres, I guess is what it turns out to. I want to be able to irrigate that entire area within 12-hour period, and that's averaging a 45-minute irrigation time going over and over. So 45 minutes here, 45 minutes there, 45 minutes there, 45 minutes there. Because if a pump goes down, it's going to take me at least a day and a half to two days to get it. I want to be able to have enough time built into that system so when I get that pump in back and installed, and believe me, I will be scrambling to get that pump. I'll do whatever it takes to get that pump. I have a buffer time that when I know when I get that pump operational again, I can catch up. Does that make sense? So you, you, when, you, when you are in control of your own waterworks, when you're doing you know, an acre plus production here, and that's kind of what you're looking at as a small scale production, if it goes down, you don't call the, the, the water service and say, hey, my water's out. You're the one in charge of this. You have to think about the buffers you're building into your own system. I need to hurry up here. Um, plan for expandability. Don't skimp. A lot of people say, oh, well, I'm just going to use this much area, and then next year I'll, I'll add this on. And they're putting pipe in the ground, and they don't realize that that pipe can only carry a certain amount of volume of water. So you want to make sure that within reason, you're building your system with pipe sizes that are going to give you a degree of expandability because you don't want to go back in and dig up that line and have to add a different, entirely different main line in. So it's cheaper, in my opinion, uh, to do it right the first time than to skimp and then be like, oh, I need to respin that money. Um, you'll have to cost, you know, draw the cost on that for yourself. But in my opinion, it's best to give yourself an expandability option um, for this. Okay, plan on large enough pump house for possible water treatment and additional tech. Um, a lot of pump houses that I've observed, they build them kind of small, you know, maybe a four by four room, okay? And then it's heated so that your pump doesn't freeze or your water, you can have a pressure tank in there. Well, the reality of the matter is, is that you are going to most likely be adding in extra things, whether it's going to be water treatment, whether it's going to be adding and manipulating the chemistry in your water as far as a fertility additive, um, or you're going to be adding in things like meters and things that you might not foresee right now that you need. You might need space for them. And so um, I would factor in, at least for our operation, our dimensions are, it's 14 by 14 by 16 foot pump house room. And I have a wall where I can bring in extra tech in the future, cut into my line and splice in meters, water treatment. And I know I'm, I'm going to need to do this for our water condition. So having the room is going to be very important. So... We're just going to give you, those are those kind of the overall things that I can think about. If you need more specifics, come to the booth and I'll be willing to talk about your particular situation and kind of make, 
make, uh, think a little bit more in detail about maybe what this looks like for you. So this is our, um, our farm again, and our pump house is right in the center. This might not be the option for everyone, but in our case, we were able to put it right in the center. And the nice thing about that is that everything goes out from a center location, and it, if anything breaks, it's right there. It just keeps it nice and convenient. I've almost thought, I'm not quite sold on this maybe right now, but I've almost thought about drill, if, you even, if you had a well, let's say, off the farm and you wanted to bring it in, it would almost be worth making a little pump house over there where the well is and then bringing the water all the way to your center pad, bringing it above, above the ground so that you can add in, let's say, like I said, tech, possible water chemistry manipulation, a room where you can do all that and then go back in the ground and run it out to all your fields because you don't want to have to, if you ever have to do water treatment, you don't want to have to do it at each of your individual fields. That increased cost. You want to have a main hub area where you can accomplish all that um, and then send it out to your fields. So centralization is kind of what it comes down to. So uh, our, our system is broken into four. We have um, the northeast, southeast, uh, northwest, southwest, uh, three-inch section valves. Ours, we have a three-inch main line. And the reason to break it into four components there is that if anything breaks on any of those arms of the system, we want to be able to section that off so that our entire system doesn't go down at once. And of course, you can you can overthink this and put way too much in. I felt like this was a good design to give us a little bit. This is what I'm talking about, cushion here. Add in places so that if something does break, everything downstream can be turned off and your, your whole system doesn't, doesn't die and you're not like freaking out, okay? So that's what that's for. Oops. Wait a minute. Yeah, that's right. Okay. This is our pump house, which was... Uh, which was the hoop house, which was the seed house, which was the wash house, and now is the pump house. That's what it looks like now. This is inside, and if you want more particulars about what's going on in there, that's my grandpa over to the right-hand corner there. Um, so getting back, so that's what the wash house, that's what the center building looks like. And then it feeds out, and this is, this is as much irrigation we've put in. We've actually put in irrigation to only eight of the eight center fields here and then one off to this side. And the reason for that is you have to count your cost and have a budget, and that's how much our budget could put in. So that's what we're doing, and we're developing those center eight fields in that one. In the future, though, we're, uh, oh, those are the valve boxes. So there's, there's four valve boxes per each of these field areas, and the reason I have it broken up like that is because when you're doing a large, uh, small-scale mixed, mi mixed vegetable production, what happens is, is that you have a lot of different crop varieties that might need specific needs, like watering needs or fertility needs. And I wanted to break my system up into sections that I felt like in the future when I expand, I might be able to put one crop variety in there and then hone in on the specific watering and nutritional needs for it. So that's why I have, maybe some people think it's too much. It might be, we'll see. But in the future, we're going to hopefully have four of these valve boxes. And that's what they look like. And we just used uh, uh, a piece of plate steel and one of those 55-gallon drums, blue drums, cut the bottom off of it. That's what we're using for our valve boxes. And, um, and then, of course, we have a two-inch line going in there. And um, so that's what that looks like. And then we're going to connect into that up into our fields. So in the future, this is possibly what it will look like. We might have to manipulate the system uh, a bit more but you kind of see the overall flow. And also, you can see that we are, we're sharing the three-inch line on the south side of the fields here, and then there's just one on the, on the back side. The idea is that we didn't want to run up this road and put it on the front side of those fields because that would even be farther away from our center. So trying to pull everything as close as possible, we're going to be going into that a little bit more in detail. So that's the overview on irrigation. Aubrey? We're going to roll in right to our next. So write your questions down if you have any on that. We're going to roll into our next one real quick. Just a notification, a heads up. Tomorrow, there are going to be two class periods dedicated completely to this concept. So we're just going to touch on a couple things that kind of stand out in our minds. Then tomorrow, if uh, Matt Dealey is going to be doing one uh, first seminar in the Activity Center conference room, which is a little room at the front part of the gym, when you walk in the front doors, it's just to the right. 
uh, leaning and increasing efficiency on the farm. And then seminar two, which in the, is in the same place, is going to be the farmer roundtable leaning and efficiency. And it's going to be more like a discussion. That's, yeah, so more of a discussion, interactive kind of a thing. So we're just going to hit a couple of things. We'll probably go into a lot more in depth tomorrow. Um, and it's something that we're still really trying to figure out ourselves. So we're just going to share with you what we kind of know at this point. Um, we get the ideas from a couple couple areas. Uh, the Lean Farm, it's a book by Ben Hartman, and then The Market Gardener. Which are both available at the Ad Agri booth. Yes, the Ad Agri booth should have both of those books available. Um, well worth it. It's well worth the read. And there's kind of one very strong concept that comes from, from both of these books, and that's the concept of growing better, not bigger. Um, we were actually up at Jean Martin's farm a few years back, and he just kept going on and on about, that. that's the guy who wrote the Market Gardener book, and he kept going on and on about, like, I don't understand why people feel like they keep, they need to get bigger in order to make this work for them. He goes, the whole idea is to get smaller and become better at what you're doing, which I think you mentioned that just a little bit earlier, Larry. Um, so that's something we're really trying to put into play because it is very easy to yield to the temptation to become bigger and think that that's a good idea. But in reality, there's quite a few downsides, especially when you're doing small, intensive growing. Yeah? The, the saying goes is that if you can't manage a 1 16th of an acre well, you don't have any business doing an acre. So, and that's why even on our farm, even though we're going to be sizing up to two acres in the future, we're starting out with like a quarter. Okay. So even when you have more acreage and you're seeing the whole design I have, I'm not developing that all at once. This will be an incremental growth and we're going to grow into that farm. It's not starting out that way. Yeah. So we make, like my dad says, this is one of his favorite sayings, make your mistakes small. And it's really, really good idea. Uh, yes, thank you, Dad. Um, it's a really good idea to make your mistakes small. Um, I actually have that philosophy when it comes to houses, but we won't go into that right now. Okay, so. Why are you looking at me? No, I just, just oh, happened to think oh, of oh, it. Oh, yeah, oh. okay. So, unideal and ideal. This is kind of a scale in my mind. It's not, it, it's kind of a bit of a gradient. Um, I'll tell you a story real That's quick. A nice word. Yeah, gradient, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a nice, uh, a nice story about an unideal scenario. Um, we were doing a farm tour of the Northeast a few years ago. Uh, that's actually when we stopped and saw you guys. Yeah, that, this is not a story about you. Um, and uh, so we, were, we stopped at this farm along the way, and this guy... I mean, he's, he's amazing, and the fact that he was actually doing it and surviving was amazing, but I think he had about five acres or so, and he was spread to the winds. Like, like so we were helping one morning. Uh, we were there for a couple days. We were helping one morning harvest, and we're out in this field that's just like there's fields this way, and there's fields this way, and over there, and yonder, and then, like, over the river and through the woods. Literally, I'm not kidding. So we, we get our harvest bins and we load it up, like three or four harvest bins, and they're like, okay, take this to the wash house, which is at the very front of the farm. And so we're like, okay. Um, they put it on a, this golf cart. A golf cart. They put it on this golf cart, and they're like, okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to go, go past the turkeys, and then you're going to take a right by the pigs, then you're going to go around the barn, and then you're going to go down this kind of in, this grade, and you'll go through the woods for a while, over the river and through the woods, and then you're going to go around the orchard, and then you should hit the road, and then take the road, and you'll get back to the wash house. And I was like, you got to be kidding. Okay, so mom and I get in, and we're going, and like, we're out in the middle of nowhere, like, with these totes and trying to get to the wash house, and we finally get there, like, ten minutes later, and I'm like, this, I just don't know, like, how is he doing this? Like, this is unideal scenario. This is unideal scenario. I think he has since really tried to change how he, do, how, how he does things, but that's... He read the books we recommended. Yeah, that's maybe so. <laughs> so that's kind of an unideal scenario, and we kind of like to think of, I mean, after seeing multiple different farms and after 
reading some of these books and after experimenting for the last five years, we like to think that Better Together Farm is moving, moving towards the ideal scenario. Um, and there's two kind of primary principles to keep in mind. Um, and there's more than that, but what we're going to be covering right now is two, uh, centralize and standardize. Uh, so centralize. Why centralize? Like, what, what's the importance of centralizing? Well, the main importance, and, and Larry touched on this, but it, it, it's worth definitely repeating again, is the idea that if I have to, if I, for whatever reason, forget a tool, you know, or if I need to use the bathroom, I don't want it to be a half an hour jaunt there and a half an hour back or 15 minutes there, 15 minutes back. You want to spend as much time actually doing what you're needing to do instead of in transit between the locations. So centralized helps pull that together so that you're not spending so much of your time walking around. You're actually working at what you need. What, what do, walking does not make you money. It's what you're doing when not you get to farming. those, not in farming. Not in farming, but that would be kind of interesting, like walk for, no, never mind. Okay. Um, you want to explain the hub spokes and rims concept? Okay, I'll, I'll explain the hub spokes and rim concept. Um, hub spokes and rims. So when you're thinking about centralizing, you want to think from the inside out. In some ways, it's kind of like a version of the golden circle that we were talking about this morning with your why at the center and then your how and your what. That's kind of like the same idea except in... Hub spokes rim. Uh, yeah, hub spokes rim. So this is kind of interesting how... Bicycle yeah, hubs, yeah, bicycle language. So you want to build your farm... Like wagons, but... Anyways, wagons a like a bicycle. So what does that mean? What is a hub? Hub is where your main activity goes on. So in, on, at Better Together Farm, it's the area in the red circle. Uh, so that has our, our wash house, our pump house, our seed house, our shop. And currently, that's also where we're living inside a fifth wheel and a bumper pull camper. But, I, but you'll have to wait until um, Friday morning to hear my parents' version of that story. <laughs> Uh, we're still debating whether or not that's good for long-term living. I mean, obviously, we won't live right there long-term because that's supposed to be, like, your really nice shop one day. Um, but that's, that's the hub. Uh, and then spokes are the areas um, high-maintenance high crops. So, well, yeah, that's what I have in the notes. Is the, it's the spokes? <laughs> 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 okay, okay, go ahead. Keep yeah, high maintenance crops. Um, <laughs> your irrigation, uh, roadways, and access ways. These are kind of, these are your spokes. So this is what you want to be closer to your hub. So in on Better Together Farm, uh, the blue lines represent where we have our irrigation running. And notice we have the irrigation running on the inside of our fields, so it's closer together. It could be running on the outsides of the fields, but then it'd be really far away. So we try to really tighten it, right. keep it close. Um, and then our roadways are in the green, um, so they run like a tic-tac-toe board, kind of. And then our access ways, um, that are smaller. 12 feet, about 12 feet wide. Yeah. Yeah. The roadways are 20 feet wide. Do we have that in there? No, that's okay. I, I think it's. I think it comes just a little bit later. And okay. then you have your rim. So we've done our hub, we've done our spokes, and now we have the rim. Those are. Whoops. Sorry, audioverse. The rim is uh, your low maintenance crops and your fruit trees, and then things that you don't really need to access that often because you're not going to be going out there, so it can be further away from you. So does that make sense? Obviously, if our farm were a bicycle wheel, it would be a pretty rough ride because it's a square. But you know, you get the basic idea. Yeah, it's easier to standardize to standardize squares in this instance. Uh, speaking of standardized, thank you, David. We'd like to move into the next section, which is standardized, and we're going to play a guessing game. So, does anyone have an idea who this gentleman is? His mother's son, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but as far as his name, any, any guesses? My dad thought it was Napoleon, but it's not Napoleon. He's missing the hat and the... Sorry? Four? 
President Ford. Ford? No. Ford, no. Oh, okay. Henry Ford. Henry? Henry. That Henry? It's a very good guess, though, which is it's the same kind of idea that we're trying to get across. We should have done Henry Ford. No, he'd been too easy. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas Edison? No. Okay, Alan, you get to tell him. This is your idea. You forgot? No, I know who it is. I forgot. You did? Oh! <laughs> I'm blanking at the moment. I'm blanking at the moment. <clears throat> well, I'm this is Eli Whitney. That's right. Eli Whitney's. We've, oh, was, okay, so people know who Eli Whitney is. The inventor of the what? Cotton gin. But did you know that Eli Whitney also had a very, very he, he interesting actually, invention? He actually didn't really earn any money off the cotton gin because it was such a valuable piece of equipment. People were making copies, and he could never get his patent, uh, patent honored. And so he just lost it. But he actually made a tremendous amount of money in standardizing weaponry like guns and stuff like that for the military. And he was the first one that actually used machining so that every part of the gun was exactly the same as every other part. Basically saying, if the gu guns used to be works of art, like bows and arrows and things like this, where you gun breaks, and you gotta go to a gunsmith to actually make a specific part. And so no parts were interchangeable. So on the battlefield, once a weapon was broken, the likelihood of it being able to get fixed was hardly any. But he basically came up with a way of saying, what if we made all the parts interchangeable so that if a gun breaks, we can take these parts and use them for another gun, which is, makes a big, a lot of sense when you're in the military. So, fun trivia for you guys, right? That takes us right into standardizing. So why standardize? We essentially answered our own question. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Keep it simple. The more you standardize it, the easier it is to keep it simple. We were going to add on another thing there, but we decided to leave it just as keep it simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Alan, go ahead and talk. I think people got it. <laughs> talk to us about beds, footbeds, so, and so on. Like Larry, all our beds are the same width. They're the same length. I don't know if yours are all the same length, are they? They should be. Oh, okay. Sorry, I, I, I missed that part. I, I didn't realize. Okay. All of, they're all, it, all the same, okay? All the footpaths are exactly the same. All the blocks, which there are four blocks that make, are made up of four beds in each field. All those blocks are the same, and all the fields are the same dimensions. So the idea is, I don't know, do we have this down here, Aubrey? You don't when, have the dimensions. Oh, okay, so let me give you the dimensions real quick. So they're 30 inches by 100 feet. The footpaths are 18 inches wide. Which is an upgrade. Oh, they used to be a foot wide. We did the Elliott Coleman model, which he says a foot, and we've changed the Jean Martin model. I'm saying, I'm slaughtering probably his name, but uh, which is 18 inches wide. And I'm really excited about the 18 yes. inch footpath. We lost a lot of square footage, but I guess, anyways. Yeah. And, and you don't have to, you don't have to. But the, the biggest thing to me. You don't have to go like this when you're harvesting. Which but, kills you. The biggest thing to I'm me. I know, I know. <laughs> the, the biggest thing for me about the 18-inch footpath is that if you buy a Kubota L3800, which is the little L model, it fits perfectly with the ag tires over these beds. So even though um, we're giving up a little space, I can also use a tractor to be able to manage my fields, which is a big thing for me because unless you're a young person or fairly physically fit, it's really hard for other people to do things like broad forking on your farm. It's very labor intensive on a large scale. The tractor levels the playing field. So my grandma could do field prep, which is usually something that, now my grandma's a very strong lady. I'm not saying that she's not. But the idea is that it's just, it wears on your body, and if you're going to be doing this for a long period of time, you have to think of ways that will keep you in the business, and that's a big thing right there. So you, you talked about blocks, and you talked about field? Oh, sorry. Field. The, the, blocks are, the block dimensions are 14 and a half feet by 100 feet long, and then the field dimensions, the blocks are separated by 4 feet, and the reason for that is that our blocks are what we're going to be putting our hoop houses over, little caterpillar tunnels, which... Um, unless you're going to make them yourself, uh, Jonathan Dysinger has some um, really good deals. I know he's not here, but he did give me this hat, not be to say this, but um, I, I have, I have, run, Dad, <laughs> um, 
I have run the numbers on it, and I'm, I'm making some things of my own, and that's because I have access to some really inexpensive material. But if you don't have access to people that are willing to give you stuff for really good prices, you really can't beat you just can't beat it. It's it's very difficult. And even and if you do beat it, you're going to spend a lot of time. The price. The, the price pr for? The hoop, these little hoop houses, these little caterpillar tunnels. So, But the idea here is that if everything's standardized, then now all your little hoop houses, all your little row covers, all your little, everything is interchangeable, just like these guns. If anything breaks on your irrigation system, the system is the same on every system. So one, w let's say you have a, 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 a section that's empty. What do you do? You go pull it off of here and put it on that one. The idea is that if anything breaks, you have so many others and you can just exchange it. Which is what... This is, it, is yeah, okay. Yeah. Interchangeable irrigation. Uh, weed control fabric. So silage tarps, which I don't know. Larry, did you touch on silage tarps? A little, bit. A little bit. Basically, it's what they use to cover hay from getting wet and stuff, um, which silage is cow feed and stuff like that, but you can get them. Um, and they, anyways, people use it to cover their fields so weeds don't grow up in them. Um, and it's really effective. Highly effective. And in that way, it's all the same size because right. on our old place, our fields were all different sizes and our beds were different lengths. And we had all these different type sizes of silage tarps and row covers. And it's a huge pain, especially once you pick them all up and then you store them for the for the winter to pull them out and be like, okay, is where's the, the one? And, the then you, one? and then you unwrap the whole thing and you're just like, oh, man. So that is not a good situation. Like, come help me fold this back because you, you really can't do it one person. So to have it all the same, you don't have to worry what size it is because it's that same size. Keep it simple. Yeah. And it works real well. Mm -hmm. Okay, fertilizer application Just using all the same dimensions. So all your calculations are going to be for the same square footage. It's simple. It's simple. Okay. Uh, season extension, we went over that. Uh, row covers, all those things are all the same. It just, it's simple. And whatever you can do to simplify your system, it's just that much more time that you can spend on fine-tuning your system. Amen. So. So that takes us to the end of the setup for efficiency. Oh, wait, no. We were, well, yes. But we were going to talk just briefly about the online market at the end of, during this. Yeah. It, some, uh -huh. So we have a few minutes to briefly touch on this, um, and then we should have time for questions before the last class. Um, Let me start. Sure. Okay, so Better Together Farm started out as a CSA program, and we were really nervous like Larry was on the C whole CSA model because well, we were new. Yeah. I was nervous. Yeah, were you yeah. not nervous? Maybe you're like Michelle, where she's like, oh, that's my favorite part. And Larry's like, you're not in charge. <laughs> yeah, as long as you're not in charge. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, but I was really nervous. So basically, we only said, okay, look, we're going to do half a season. We're going to do half a season here, right? And, um, but we did do a little bit something different when we started out. We, we decided, see, there are no farmer's markets we, where we are. In Oklahoma, there really isn't a vibrant local food movement. It's, yeah. Well, and then the markets that, we do have, Tulsa. yeah, Tulsa, which is Tulsa like is three and a half hours from us. Doesn't make um, sense right now. There's a bit of one in the Oklahoma City area, but it tends to run on Saturday, which obviously is not an a option. A lot of your farmer's markets are on Saturday, which is a big no-no. So Larry and Michelle are really blessed to be in an area that has that. Um, but if you're in an area that doesn't have it, really have do? to get, yeah, we, we have to get creative. I don't know how far you want to go. So basically, we said, okay, look, we don't have this, so what can we do? So that really what kind of steered us into the whole online marketing venture, okay? And the idea was is that since we don't have a farmer's market, we will put our product up online. Do you want to? Yeah, sell on. Okay. Um, and so we, we started doing that. So our CSA ran through, and we had two options. You could either go online and pick out your produce, which we basically said you had to spend a minimum of a certain amount per week. Um, and then you had uh, the option of basically we make up a box for you, right, type of thing. And 
halfway through the season, we ran out of stuff. I think that was your experience too. Because you're new at this. You don't know how it's going to work. There's so much unknown. And so we decided to say, look, we're going to cancel the CSA and we're just going to purely do it based on people getting whatever we have available. So it went just as well for us. We sold just as much product by giving people free reigns of, of the options that we did before we had the CSA. And I know the CSA is nice because it gives you upfront capital. Um, a bit of a problem in our own particular area, though, was that we, we don't live in a very wealthy and lucrative community or area. And so to plunk down $500 is a big thing that people, it's a big financial hurdle for people to get over. And so we, are you going to nod your head? I don't know if I'm saying right. Uh, anyways. No, I mean, I think it's for people who aren't used to the idea of a CSA, I think it can be intimidating because the people that we sell to are not low-income people because the people who care about the kind of food that they're eating, generally, you don't find them in the lower income. You find them in the middle class. Um, so my guess is they probably are financially capable, but because they're not used to the culture of the CSA, I think it's intimidating to do that. So there might be several And reasons. then they, yeah, so there's, there's multiple reasons why we've explored something different than the traditional CSA model. People, um, like people we've just, and, and the, 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 the tricky thing, and this is why CSA tends to be popular, is because um, you determine, you, you determine what it is, and you don't have to try to find out what the customer wants. So the, the process of customization isn't there because that is a process and it is extra work. So for example, the way we've done it, and this is why it's a little tricky for me to remember because every single year we've done it differently because we're like, well, that worked kind of well, let's try it this way. And then this worked kind of well, let's try it this way. So I'm trying to go back through the years of experiments and it gets a little fuzzy because last year we didn't do anything at all. We were moving our farm and that was a full-time job. Um, but people really, really value being able to choose their product. Um, we, we've done polls on our customers, and we, we did this one poll where we, we offered a, where we would build your box. We called it build, we farmer pick or you pick, something like that. It wasn't you pick because that got confusing with you pick, which is something totally different. You build or something. Yeah, you build, whatever. And we offered that as an option so, like, the customer could build their own order, or we could build it for them and save them the hassle of going online and ordering it. And we had, I think, 20 customers, and two of them chose to actually let us build their order. 18 of them wanted to do their own. And so we're like, oh, okay, so how, do we, how can we actually make this work? And we're currently in the process of, we're blessed, our cousin is a um, website developer, and so he generally, generously gives us his time a couple times out of the year to help us build this online structure. Because even though I do media, I don't do websites. That's like a, you know, a dentist doing brain surgery, like totally different kind of field. Medicine, but totally different kind of field. Um, so he's been generous enough to help us, but technology is getting to the point where it's becoming easier and easier and easier to do it on your own. You can build your own website on your own. You can open your own online market on your own. Yeah, it doesn't have, there's a couple things that I'm still trying to figure out that I really like, like being able to take all your orders and put them into a spreadsheet in a comprehensive way for the farmer to know how to harvest. It gets a little fuzzy here and there, but in general, what we're trying to accomplish by our uh, direct-to-consumer sales is giving the customer the ability to customize their order in a way that we can sustainably keep up with and scale. Because that's the thing. Like, okay, you can do this with 20 people, but can you do this with 40 people? Can you do this with 60 people? Can you do this with 100 people? Can you do this with 150 people? You know, and so trying to figure out that model, which has been just grand and glorious experiment the last five years, of figuring out what that looks like and how that works so that the customer is still happy, and yet we can still do it so that it actually works for us. So, I mean, we've thought of all kinds of crazy things, like 
Well, could we ship it to their front door? Could we, uh, you know, what if we did like Amazon, have you seen this thing that Amazon came out with just recently, like Amazon Drop, where like they, they put, they're putting these drop areas and they'll actually drop the package there and then you go pick it up so that they don't leave it at your door in case you're in a place where you can't really have it at your door for safety. I mean, there's different reasons. So he thought, of, well, what if we did something like an Amazon drop, use a lot, utilizing a local business in our town that would be willing to let us rent a space of their store and we put in a cooler and then we have it there so that the, because there's, there's a couple of big things. Choice is one and convenience is another thing. We have so many people that would love to buy from us, but the, it's not convenient for them. Like they, they can't they work nights. They they work nights or they have kids and so to events. you know, so their kids get out of school and they have to take them to extracurricular activities and to try to fit us in on their stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of things that in our in our in the, our reality it's tricky to try to work around and, and find what works. So we're in the process of figuring that out right now. One thing that we're definitely doing this year Lord willing and cousin permitting, um, is we're going to start processing all the orders online because what we had in the past Which was they would they would reserve their order and they I could have it set so it would be COD so when they came they paid for it on site, but the problem was sometimes they couldn't pick up, and then it would become this like well I'm sorry I, I missed my order. Or I totally forgot about my order. Or, I mean, we try to make it as easy as possible for them to remember. Let me just finish my train of thought. Um, and so it became a little bit of a, a, a frustration for us. We realize people are busy, but we also realize that, hey, they don't show up. We lose 40 bucks. We lose 60 bucks. We lose however much their order was. And so we have this idea that if we offer them the convenience of ordering it online, as in processing their payment online when they place their order, then we have the order paid for, but then they can send anybody to pick it up. And they don't have to worry about, oh, I need to give you the money so that you can pay for this. Or, or we can drop it off at a location Or we can drop it off there. and leave it there. We don't have to worry about them actually meeting up with us and, you know, that kind of exchange. So it opens the realms of possibility for us to think, hey, we could actually have it. We drop it at a store and they pick it up tomorrow or the next day or the next day, whenever it's convenient for them, those kinds of things. Okay, that was the end of my thought. No, yeah, very good, very good, good point. Um, one thing to think about, and I know this is, this is, this is a bit of a, a, of a thing for us because we really like the personal interaction with our customers. This is very important to us. But the reality of the matter is, is there's a finite amount of people that are willing to spend that time to actually come and see you, okay? Because there, and there's other people outside of that circle which would like to have your product, they just don't have the time to come and see you. And so, since we are finite beings, we're not omnipresent, we have to say, okay, th there's going to be a give and take in here, here. You're only one person. And so how do we have meaningful customer interaction, but also able to reach out beyond that small group of people that are willing to spend that extra time to actually come and physically see us during a window of time every week at a certain time when their schedules might dictate that they might not be able to come. And so we're toying with the idea of maybe if we can go in this direction of having a more hands-off customer experience, which is what it would become, and maybe try to beef up the on-farm experience for people where we might have events maybe three times a year where we can invite people to come out and see their farm and where it's grown and really type, try to just take out time either during the season or after the season's done to really kind of boost, have a, a, a meal like Larry said, but maybe, maybe not once a year farm meal, maybe we have it three times a year. Things like that where for those people that still want to have that personal touch, that personal interaction that we can still meet that and scale our production in a way that's quite honestly just practical, okay? Yeah, given our location and yeah. demographics and such. Um, so that kind of goes into, as much as I can remember, online, so our selling online experience. Um, we have about 16 minutes before uh, we go to a break, so 
we can go into yeah. questions, right? If you have any questions, if not, we could, you know, take a, we could take break now and then come back and get finished earlier. So, if the yeah. questions, yes. Yeah, one right here. Yeah, about the, uh, your wash house. Yeah. Have we considered making an article about how no, to make? No, he he saw an article on an automated wash house. On an automated wash house. Um, like the entire house was automated. How much did it cost? It's homemade. I mean, I would I would definitely be willing to look at something like that. I mean, the thing is, is that you're going to be spending probably the majority of your time washing your crop and getting it presentable for your customers. So whatever you can do to cut down on that time is gonna be helpful. But of course, there's always the, the balance between cost and efficiency. How much does it cost to make this versus the efficiency it's gonna give me? And that's something that everyone personally has to weigh out on their own production. But I, mean, I am not opposed to, to, to automation at all. Um, yes. Repeat the question. Okay, so how feasible is it to have a wash house in the middle of the summer with plastic on it and being like sweltering? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about the well-being of the farmer. You're talking about the vegetables. She doesn't care about the farm. No. Okay. So the vegetables. Um, this. Uh, so so there, there's a few ways to look at this. One is is that you can use that hoop house structure and put a non-translucent film on it. Okay, so there's films that you can get like from farm tech. There, you could put metal over it like we did our pump house. You could just have a metal over the top of it, you know, for, so you're providing shade. Uh, we're actually using eight mil silage tarp, which is what we use for weed protection. Actually, that's a five mil for weed. We're using an eight mil, and um, it's probably not rated for more than three years, but it gets us in the door. Most plastic is not rated for more than four, but I don't think it's because the plastic breaks down it because it gets hazy. That's actually breakdown of plastic is more of a light transmission issue when it comes to clear plastic than longevity, in my opinion. We but. also used shade cloth on our third wash house. And it was under a tree. And it, it was, was under, under a, tree, a tree, which, which made the big difference. So the shade. We do not have this yeah, time. Yeah, we do not have this time. So the shade of the tree actually in the morning covered our entire wash house. So we had to literally get everything harvested before noon hit because when noon hit then our wash tank got in the sun and so that was a bit of a of a like hurry you know type of thing yeah so. and try to harvest before the heat of the day yeah I mean, you really want to only harvest in the morning that's my opinion what you agree with that larry primary time is in the morning or in the middle of the night <laughs> oh really well quality and yeah, it's, it, it's, it really has to do with, is your crop even going to look good? Because if you're trying to harvest, let's say, kale in the middle of the day, maybe it's nutritionally better, but boy, no one's going to buy it because you're not going to get it in time before it wilts. Unless, did you say you use like a magic cooling solution with wilty kale? And yeah. yeah, I wouldn't, but you wouldn't. Well, water solution. You wouldn't sell that kale after it wilted once, would you? No, I would eat it. Oh, you would eat it. Yeah, okay. Okay, you would eat it. I would eat it too, but I need this guy back here. Yeah. Do you have any experience with uh, locallygrown.net for online markets? We did look at locallygrown.net. Uh, okay, the question was, did we have any, do we have any experience with locallygrown.net, uh, which is an online, basically, marketing platform for uh, small-scale farmers? Um, you know, what I remember when we looked at it was it was ugly. <laughs> it was really ugly. And unless you know how to, uh, you know how to program an HTMI or something like that, the, the is, it, is it HTMI? No, it's, it's called H, what is it? HTML. HTML. The, yeah, that's this. Okay. Unless you're a good programmer in that, um, I wouldn't, I don't know, it's ugly. It's just ugly. The color scheme is off. It, it's, it's just nasty, in my opinion. I know some people have tried to, to beef it up, but when you are doing primarily web marketing, you want your website to look amazing, okay? 
And I don't know, do we have any pictures of, and they might have improved it in the last few years, which, but I didn't, I didn't really like it personally. This is another place that we currently have, we haven't used, um, but it was something I learned about last year at a farmer's market conference in Oklahoma. It's called Agruity. Um, and essentially it's that idea. These guys that were farmers noticed that the farmer's market wasn't convenient for everyone. So they wanted to figure out a way to get people's product online. Um, and so I'm not, necessarily advertising it I'm just saying this is something I looked at about a year ago and it like kind of sort of seemed like it would fit our situation because you could also select your drop point so like people would say hey I could go get this here and it, so it's just a really easy platform to get your products online I haven't looked at it in about a year it just popped into my head when he mentioned locally grow locally locally grown yeah. yeah and so it might be something to look at and just check it out they've they they've been actively working on it to improve it um so yeah check out agruity so that's is this is another question this is, was another question sir didn't oh he's not no mom's pointing at somebody but oh did oh. you have a question <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Larry was talking about Larry, that. why don't you come up here and answer that question? Um, what I was, basically all I was trying to explain oh, was this. repeat the question? Did we repeat oh, it? Oh, well, as far as the hydrocooling and then refrigerating, why does that work so well? And so basically what you're doing is you're locking in the moisture into the plant. So hydration of the plant is, is really what's going to cause that plant's longevity. Yeah, it's going to last a lot longer because what you're fighting is dehydration. Not room temperature, though. Right, right. So, so that's going to go into the cooler. In the cooler, that's going to basically hold the moisture, hold the moisture in. It's going to, it's going to lock that moisture into the plant. Um, when you take it to market, you're going to lose some of that. So what we tell people at market is, okay, when you take this home, if you're going straight home, it's probably good. But you know, Brother Swain would come, and he had a CSA with us. And sometimes we'd have that CSA sitting there all day, and they wouldn't get there to the end of the market. And so when he would go home, I'd say, hey, you know, the lettuce or the, you know, if the, if the radish tops were wilty, I'd say throw them in the sink, fill the sink up, throw them in the sink, let them sit there for about 30 minutes. They'll hydrate, dry them off, throw them back in the bag, put them in the fridge, and they're going to last you, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks sometimes, you know, just depending on how you treat them. And so, you know, part of it's informing your customers what they should do with them when they get home as well so that they understand how to, to actually store their food properly, because most people really don't know how to do that. This made me think of something that I just want to mention real quick. I went, uh, has anyone heard of FISMA? Far, uh, no, is that what it's called? It's the Food Modernization Act that's been going through Congress. Well, it's already through. Yeah, so it, um, well, it's, it's actually something that's, be, it, it, it has a lot of the gap principles, but it's, it's not necessarily connected it's a federal thing, and it doesn't necessarily apply to these small-scale things, but I went to a training, and one of the things that they're very concerned about is making sure that when you start, when, if you're using hydrocooling, that needs to be potable water, and you need to change it out often because they don't want, uh, because when you hydrate a crop like that, when you put it in water, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have some of that water come into it. If that water is contaminated, it's going to draw those pathogens into the vegetable, and then that's one of the reasons why they've had a lot of, you know, things like E. coli from contaminated water or, or, or things like this. So it's really important that as small farmers we do our due diligence because if one small farmer gets found out that he's been spreading a pathogen, everyone suffers. And so it's something that we really need to take seriously because um, people are watching and, yeah. So what do you do if you treat your wash sinks? Um, Bleach. 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 Soap. Oh, what do we use to clean our wash sinks? We use we we can use bleach. We have used soap. There are other um, maybe more agriculturally friendly products. I wouldn't know exactly what their name, but I know that there's some. When Brad and Judy Johnson were here last year, well, in Florida, they mentioned some stuff that um, is is really good as well for that kind of stuff. That um, yeah, might not be as harsh as bleach, but has the same effect. Sean. 
a sprinkler for my plots? Okay, have I decided on a sprinkler for our plots? Uh, come to my class on Friday, and <laughs> that's what I'm going to be talking about most of the overhead irrigation and, and what we use, and I'll actually have, actually have most of it here. I'll have it at my booth so you can play around with it and stuff like that. So, right. Yes, sir. Sorry about that. So what's the difference between a hoop house and a greenhouse? Uh, structurally speaking, very little difference as far as the main metal structure. The difference is, is that a greenhouse primarily usually has automated cooling and heating. Um, it's a double layer poly with inflation in between it, which means that there's a dead air space, which means that you actually are heating that structure because you're trying to limit the amount of heat loss from that structure. So it's a much more expensive, and you're spending money in a heater, you're probably going to have fan louvers in that thing. Um, it's going to be more temperature and humidity controlled. It's just, just a high-end, you know, a hoop house is just a single layer, and you're using passive ventilation, which means you, you have roll-up sides on it. Your doors are going to open up in a, in a greenhouse situation. That will be all pretty much automated, and you'll have extra insulation by creating that dead air space, and then you'll have heating in that house as well. So that's the difference. One's heated and double-layered, and the other one is unheated in a single layer. Right. And it, it, it's good because to, yeah, it, people, people go back and forth. And, and when I was saying, look, if you're going to be using a hoop house for a wash house, I'm saying make it a greenhouse. The reason I'm saying that is because it's going to be heated. And so in the wintertime, it shouldn't freeze in there if you're heating it. So that's why I, I said that um, a hoop house wouldn't be heated, which is fine for spring, summer, fall production. But in the wintertime, if it freezes, what are you going to do? You know, your pipes are going to break. It, it's just going to be a big problem. Is ours going to be heated? We're not growing in the wintertime. Not oh. yet. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Aubrey doesn't like the idea. Anyways. It's a great question. That's a great question. So if you have something that's already established, a farm that's already established, what can you do to, to change it? Move. No, just kidding. Um, there are, I mean, obviously it's going to take some cost. And what I would suggest is the first thing, okay, the first thing that I would do, that I would standardize if I was, if I was doing these things, is I would concentrate on trying to move my fields over to all the same bed lengths, bed widths, those types of things. That's the first thing I would do. Because once you get that established, then your irrigation would, might be the next thing you change. And I, I might, it will depend on your economics. Do you have the money to do this? But or the landscape. I mean, some people... But you can still make your beds the same size. Yeah. It, length. Maybe. You could. Just make them all small. I would definitely start with the width aspect of it. And then I would try to do the length. And I would... I would probably be pretty vigorous. I mean, I would have to know your situation. I mean, if you're on a crazy slope and there's just, like, no way to do it, then you might just be stuck. Um, or you'll have to move, but go ahead, Larry. I think one, one of the, one of the, and this is really key, you can go on Google Maps, mm -hmm. zoom into your property, and take a picture of it, and draw, literally just draw in there. How can I, this is what I have, this is where my wash station's at, this is how it's all laid out. How can I change this where it makes more sense, where it's more efficient? Yeah, I mean, they, they'll measure it for you. You will know exactly what you have to work with, and don't be afraid to change. There's a, there's a gentleman, Connor Creekmore. Don't get too attached to stuff. When we get too attached to stuff, it all, all of a sudden it's like that old car that really needs to go, but we just can't let go of the car. And saying? then your wife ends up broken down in the middle of nowhere because you couldn't get rid of the car you were, had this affection towards. Um, my wife loves her cat. We call it inordinate affection. And we need to be able to really throw away systems that aren't working and go to a system that works. Just. And, and I would recommend changing slowly. Because you might have this idea that, oh man, this would work so much better, and then you spend all the time and all the money in changing it, and you're like, boy, that didn't work near as well as I thought. So start by changing one thing and giving it a try. Oh, you know, this works really well. Okay, I think I'm going to do it over here. And then, you know, do it. make me your mistakes small. One of the things that we're doing on our farm is that all of our beds are 100 feet, but as far as 
the, how those fields are divided. If Can we get that picture back up on the screen? Basically, it's like a rail. This way it can't go anywhere because we have all our main roadways. But I can shift my spacing this way. So I'm, I'm anticipating here. Let me, let me get up here real quick. So not that you have a situation like this, but you see this. This, I'm never going to gravel this. Even though I drive stuff over it, I'm never going to do that. Why? Because what if I got this spacing off? What if it isn't the most efficient method? Then what I'm going to do here is I might shift this over. I might shift this entire spacing, and I have as we've built this farm. This one's fairly locked in, but all of these here, they can go this way and they can go this way to, to change up that spacing. spacing. So think, think about when, even when you are making changes, maybe leave a little extra fudge room where, where you can make some minor adjustments is another thing. And, sir, I'd be happy to look at your place and, and maybe brainstorm with you a bit on that. Your hand... Um, Should we take one more? Two more, two more, two and more. then we'll go to a so, break. Here, wait, wait. If you're making a suggestion, you better have Just it. a suggestion. At our school farm, we, because of space constraints with existing cultivated area, we compromised and we made two different bed lengths. Okay. So, you know, there's right. almost yeah, there type. You things. have one or two, but not like 50. Right. Obviously, yeah. every piece of land, every area is going to have physical limitations. We live in this world, and... It's just the way it is. But the idea is that whatever we can do to help try to go in that direction. Look, I'm not going to say, oh, you unrighteous person, you weren't able to change your bed lengths. That's not the, that's not the point. The idea is to try to strive for, for, for these types of things, inefficiencies, yes. Right. Very good. Yeah. So uh, what should someone think about when they are considering the length and widths of their beds and these types of spacings? Okay. So um, here are a few things, and maybe Larry would like to speak to this too. One of, one of the big things that I think about is that who is this farm for? Am I going, is this going to be exclusively or primarily a tractor operation? Am I going to be doing everything mechanically? If so, then my beds need to fit my mechanization, and I want to have a standard bed, and then hone in all my mechanization for that exact bed top, Okay. But what if, what if you're not going to use all mechanization? What if you're a person? Um, and what if you're a person? person yeah. <laughs> this is the, something you need to question. <laughs> yeah, that came across wrong, didn't it? You are definitely a person, sir. I am not questioning your, your, your uh, personhood. Um, but the idea is that what if I'm going to be working and I'm doing primarily a lot of these things? I want to have something that fits my axle width, okay, which 30 inches is really about as far as you want to go, okay? That's about, that's about the average for a human stance, side stance, and didn't say dance, I said stance. Um, anyways, uh, and so that's, that's the width factor on that. And length. as far as length is concerned, this is, this, is, this is an interesting thing because I went back and forth on this, and I'm not quite sure exactly where I settle on this one. Um, my biggest thing is, is it all the same? Okay, that's the biggest thing to me. Is it standardized? Um, a lot of people that are doing cultivation with tractors, like Larry, the longer your rows are, the better. Because once you get on that row with your tractor, you just go, go, go. You're, if, if, if you have it too short, you're always turning around. And so you need to take that into consideration. If you have a lot of mechanization, length is your, is your uh, friend. Now, if, if you're a small-scale grower like ourselves and we're thinking that we're going to be using human-scale stuff and I want to be able to also have breakup because I don't want to have to walk all the way down that row and then walk all the way back up. And so here, with the way I have it broken up, 50 feet one way, 50 feet back. It's just a human metric where I don't want to walk more than that. And when you're dealing with things like silage tarps and these types of things that you're using for weed protection... If it's too long or if it's too wide, one person can't move this crazy thing. It's too heavy. And so thinking, think, yeah, especially when it rains, even one person might not even be able to move. I mean, it, it weighs it down. So you have to think about how many people am I going to have working here? How do I have, what do I have to manage these big pieces of material? I have to make it human scale. Um, so that would be the other consideration. Larry, you want to add anything onto that? I usually do inhuman scales, and I've suffered terribly for it. Um, yeah, I think when you bend down, the 30-inch bed is a really good bed. We have 42-inch bed tops, a four-foot bed top. When you bend down, 
and you do this, you can reach right to the middle of a 30 inch bed. On our beds, Michelle does this. <laughs> and if you do that for 20, 30 years, it, it takes its toll. And so you have to, you know, I can straddle a 42 inch bed like this, you know, which is reasonable for me to sit there and do things like this. <laughs> but it is, but she gets frustrated with me over that. So we've actually considered going to a 60-inch bed top and putting a walk path down the middle of it. But, so we end up with 30, 30 inches. Inch. Right. But I can still, no, no, no. But the point for me is, but the point for me is the same as you. You, use your, you can use your tractor, and now your grandmother can work your beds. Right. I can still work my beds with my tractors. Right. Just by changing the wheel width on my tractors. And, the and, that's, and that's the beauty. And yeah, that's... That is the reason why we went to the 18-inch footpath instead of the foot. There really isn't appropriate infrastructure made for two, two skinny beds. Beds that are, t that didn't, wasn't right English. Beds that are too skinny, they're just nothing to that scale. But the L3800, and I'm sure there's John Deere versions of the same thing, uh, but for us it worked well, um, it fits right in that. So I can use mechanization and I can also use go back to the human scale side of things. So it really is, a, I feel like, a really nice uh, middle ground between the two. So, yeah. Okay, so break, and we'll be back. 4.15. And if you guys have any questions, we definitely can uh, come up here and ask us questions during the break. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.